And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And we would love to hear your thoughts on the subject, either as a guest or to ask us a question. The way to do that is to email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. But even if you don't want to be on the show, we want to remind you all that we're here more than once a week. So if you'd like to visit us online, please Come to our online home, which is fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S. It is a wellspring of travel information. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for the word Fromers on Pinterest, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Now, a fierce battle is continuing to rage in the travel industry between the popular uh, website called Airbnb, which arranges for you to stay in a private apartment or in a home instead of a hotel. The, the battle raging is between Airbnb and numerous popular touristic cities in the United States. Cities are trying to put an end to Airbnb because they claim that the very operation of that company hurts the the market for permanent residents in that city. Now, up until now, it appears that Airbnb has been winning that, that, that battle based on the fact that if you go into the Internet, you see hundreds and hundreds of Airbnb listings that continue to appear. And that's probably because of the expense and labor of sending inspectors to possible Airbnb listings to knock on the door and be admitted and then to discern whether the owner of the residence remains in residence. That's the hallmark of a legal Airbnb activity. Regulating the activity is a big, big job. But recently, the city of Honolulu and the island of Oahu in Hawaii appear to have overcome that problem by simply declaring that certain areas of the island are totally off limits in terms of Airbnb uh, rentals, regardless of whether the rental's owner uh, remains in residence during the rental. Uh, Honolulu has announced that it will simply bring lawsuits against Airbnb rentals by reproducing the advertisements that appear for such rentals. And most important, and listen to this, they have announced a $10,000 a day penalty. Again, $10,000 a day to be imposed upon people who violate their their rules of, of rentals. The response to that massive fine has been absolutely breathtaking. The business of Airbnb fell by at least a, a third on the very first day after that penalty was announced. And it continues to fall. And the travel industry's response has been to increase the cost of hotel rentals and Airbnb rentals by a major degree. This is as a result of what Honolulu has has done. Now, yeah. Pauline, in an article on the controversy, which she recently published, uh, on our popular website, on Fromers.com, has discussed this battle at great length. 
If you want to hear more about it, you simply go to Fromers.com and you read more in detail about this mighty blow that has been directed against well, just briefly, Airbnb. Uh, yes, Pauline. I, I read about a bride who had her wedding coming up in just a few weeks when this went into effect. She got a call from the property owner she was renting with saying, you have nowhere to stay for your island wedding. A, a third of her wedding party had to cancel because they no longer could go. Uh, and she found that prices had doubled at Oahu hotels and at legal apartment rentals. All because of this immense penalty that has been placed on Airbnb yeah. rentals, on, on illegal Airbnb rentals. And the by, thing is, they can, Honolulu they can prove it by just saying you have an ad for a place <laughs> in an illegal area. So they, they've made it very easy to prove. And I think well, other cities are going to follow their well, lead. Well, if other cities, cities like New York and Washington, D.C. and Las Vegas, popular touristic cities, if they follow the lead of Honolulu and Oahu, then those uh, activities of Airbnb will have suffered a major, yes, a absolutely. major blow. And so our warning is, as usual, to our listeners, it remains the same as before. Make sure that your own rental on Airbnb is a legal one, particularly pay attention to whether the owner of the apartment or home remains in residence during the period of your own rental. Because usually it's legal if that's don't the run, case. Don't run the danger of a $10,000 day fine. Well, there's, or, it, that's not for, to be a fair. That's not for the customer. That's for the, the, the apartment uh, owner. The apartment owner, but you don't want to run afoul of that battle. Yeah. Pauline, let's turn now to a conflict uh, not between human beings, but between human beings and animals, <laughs> which because it can okay. be an important uh, subject. Recently, uh, reports have emerged, emerged of a major increase in the number of sharks, of ocean mm. sharks that have appeared in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans alongside the coastal beaches of America. That may be because of the increase in the water temperatures of those oceans, but regardless of how it came about, the increase is de definite and cannot be denied. And this poses a grave threat to a form of recreational travel. Every year, particularly in the summer months, but also in the early autumn months as well, let's continue to re remind ourselves of that, millions of Americans get into their car and they drive to the beaches of, of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans alongside the United States in order to enjoy swimming in the oceans. Some of them confine their swims to the most shallow of coastal waters that are only a foot or so deep. But a number of hardier souls go swimming out into the deeper areas. And sometimes they, they swim in areas that are several feet deep. And it is there that they can, that they can encounter sharks in great numbers now today. The danger to such swimmers has proven so grave that recently, the police of Massachusetts have closed the beaches of Cape Cod, beaches alongside the entire length of both sides of Cape Cod. They have closed them, and this action by them has been utterly unprecedented. It has never happened before. Now, it is true 
that some marine biologists have claimed that you are not engaged in hazardous swimming when you paddle out to those uh, depths. And uh, some people, a, a minority of them, go on to say that the very presence in those waters of sharks uh, do not attack, attract uh, uh, attacks by those sharks because sharks, according to, th- to them, will not attack human beings who have left them alone. But unfortunately, there have been several well-publicized tragedies in which human swimmers have gotten too close to sharks, including one particular example in which a young woman was bitten so badly by sharks that one of her limbs had to be amputated. You've heard of that, I assume, Pauline. Mm -hmm. The, The sensible swimmer in our minds will pay close attention to the danger of sharks and will perhaps avoid uh, the dangerous recreational sport of of ocean swimming, as unhappy as that well, prospect in areas may be, where there sharks have been spotted, where sharks have been yeah. spotted, but you will not uh, just go in and pay no attention to it whatsoever. Pauline, I'm not sure whether we have enough time to discuss the equally important subject of carbon uh, offsets. We, we do. have two we or have three two, days. Yeah, let me, two minutes. Let or me so. talk about a carbon offset. A carbon offset is a product that a great many new companies are now producing that can reduce harmful carbon monoxide emissions into the atmosphere, thus reducing the effects of global warming and permitting us to continue our lives on Earth. A carbon offset can be a bunch of baby trees, for example, that once planted can reduce the emission of harmful greenhouse gases. A carbon offset can be solar panels, even even one solar panel. Panel. That panel, rather, yeah. that can substitute as the creation of, of energy in the place of energy created by burning fossil fuels. Or it can be numerous other products. And a great many sensitive Americans have recently concluded that they are morally required to purchase such carbon offsets to prevent the emission of carbons that have been created by the travels that these Americans have engaged in. That realization has been increasingly felt by persons responding to a recent unusual scientific discovery. Scientists now claim that one of the major causes of harmful emissions into the atmosphere is the operation of thousands of airplanes that are flying all throughout the yeah. day and the evening uh, above above the it earth. accounts for two percent of the carbon put into the atmosphere but it's growing one number. scientist has actually written that when a passenger takes a plane on a simple trip from new york to los angeles that passenger's trip has itself caused 20 square feet of the polar ice cap to melt. That's what one scientist has said. So all of us should ask ourselves before we embark on a trip whether we are morally required to purchase and use a carbon offset to cancel out the harmful effects of our trip. And that that, re, that constitutes yep. my contribution right. to the opening to. of this program. <laughs> we have to take a break. We'll be right back.
You're listening to The Travel Show. This is Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have one of our favorite guests back. He is Scott Merowitz. He is the executive editorial director for The Points Guy. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks for having me. You all did a massive study on which are the best and worst airports in the United States. I have to ask, do you now have to go in, in disguise when you go through an airport because of the airports you've dissed? Or, or? You know, naming the best and worst airports in America is something we feel is very important. But, oh, my phone was ringing off the hook, my email, everybody commented on the story. People take their airports so personally, and <laughs> yeah. you know, I heard from airport directors, but also people in some of the cities that got dinged and are like, we don't love our airport, but really, number 46 on this list? <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that. What The Hall of Shame, who lost this survey? Who is, what is the worst airport in the United States and why? Okay, so the worst airport in America, according to our rankings this year, is Midway Airport outside of Chicago, or in Chicago. And I'm hearing right now, wait, why Midway? And why people have told me why. They love it. It is close to the city center. Yes, it has public transit. But a lot of delays, just delay Mm. after delay, delay. Is that because of Chicago's weather, or is it something in the way the airport is set up? It's everything between the weather, but it's much worse than, for instance, O'Hare. And part Mm -hmm. of it is just Southwest Airlines has a philosophy of making sure that planes get where they're going a little bit more than some of the other airlines, so they won't cancel to ease delays. And Southwest dominates Midway. So there is a little bit of a... You know, you got to dive into the numbers to understand why it is at the bottom. But I will say this. The airport experience itself is just lacking. It's got fast food. It's got really overcrowded gates. There's no natural light. It's not a happy place to be. You know, if Mm. you live in Chicago, it's probably not a bad option to fly out of. But if you're looking to connect on Southwest, maybe you think about Baltimore instead or one of the other airports Mm. that you could fly on Southwest. Interesting. To me, the key thing about an airport is enough uh, uh, outlets. I need to be able to plug in my phone and computer. Otherwise, I just go insane. Uh, Do you remember how Chicago Midway ranks for that? Or is that not a part of this? Even something more basic that they're lacking is enough seats for people Uh, at the gate area. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. It's all about quick turns for the planes that Southwest flies in there. And that's great if you're boarding and getting on your way or you're just connecting, hitting a bathroom, getting a pretzel and going on the next flight. But if you have a delay, you're going to run out of seats. And there's going to be fights over power outlets. Yeah. There are no lounges there except for one USO lounge for military fam- members and their families. Hmm. So there's nowhere for a lot of people to go and even escape those crowds. Right, right. We are speaking with Scott Merowitz, who is the executive editorial director for ThePointsGuy.com. They just did a massive study on which are the 10 best and 10 worst airlines. So we hear that Chicago Midway got the booby prize. What is the best in the United States? 
So at the top of our rankings of the best airports in America was San Diego International. Uh, and they do have two terminals there, so I do want to caution some people. But the, the big terminal, the new modern one, is actually amazing. There are tons of airport lounges, great food options, natural right places mm. to sit. It's an ease to get from the curb to your gate. And really nice little thing about it, it's seven minutes from the city center. Yeah. Now, I know you can't pick an air, a, a vacation based on an airport. You're like, honey, where should we go this year? Oh, I hear San Diego's got the best airport. <laughs> yeah. We at the Point Sky really strive to advocate for travelers to make the experience better for all of us. And that's why we put out this ranking every year. And it's not to say, yes, you must fly into San Diego or no, avoid Orlando or, you know, Chicago Midway or some of the other low-performing airports. The goal of this survey is to say to airports, learn from those that do it right. Mm. You know, if you are an airport director, I urge you, get on a plane, go to San Diego, look at their terminal, look at the food, spend a day there. I sent a reporter there for a day huh. to tell us why it's so great. And well, that's in a way, really what we're advocating. And for. it also, I mean, this might say something about the local culture. I think San Diego reflects the city. It's a lovely city. I go there almost every year with the uh, Travel and Adventure Show to give speeches, and there are great restaurants, there's interesting historic sites, transportation is pretty easy, the people are lovely for the most part. It's it's just a very nice city, and it actually is a great place to vacation, uh, thanks to you know all the great museums they have there. Yeah, and you do see that, too, with, like, Austin, Texas. I think that's a great airport um, that's really focusing on many of the things that passengers want. It's not just about the airlines or the local taxpayers, although that's important. It's really focusing on what those people who are going to be stuck at that airport for a few hours are going to have to make it a more tolerant experience. Well, it's interesting to me. I'm so happy this on there. Number nine in terms of the top 10 best is Indianapolis. And I loved flying in into Indianapolis because as you're walking through the airport, they've got race cars everywhere on display. Yeah. And it's so fun. You don't feel like you're in some cold, soulless airport. You feel like you're in a destination. And you know, as someone who travels a lot for work and sometimes doesn't get a chance to really experience a city, I like those little touches, even though they might be fake or not 100% authentic. I at least like to know that I'm in a different place instead of just checking into another Marriott again and then getting back on my flight home. Yeah. Yeah. And I always like Charlotte because of that, because it has rocking chairs. Which yep. makes you feel like you're in the South. Uh, exactly. Well, we have been speaking with Scott Marowitz. Once again, he is the editorial, executive editorial director for The Points Guy. You can read the article on their special report of the best and worst U.S. airports of 2019 at thepointsguy.com. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks, Pauline. Always a pleasure.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have a returning guest. He's Peter Kudwinski. He is a wonderful writer. This time, he's written a series of articles for The New York Times on state parks. Uh, The most recent one uh, was titled Rich in Surprises and Secrets. There's a state park waiting for you. Welcome back to the travel show, Peter. Thanks so much, Pauline. Thanks for having me. So you say rich in surprises and secrets. Give us a few surprises and secrets. I, I think a lot of people don't even think of going to state parks. They're so focused on national parks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's exactly why I was so interested in state parks. Um, like most people, there's a couple state parks that I grew up with and that are nearby me. Um, and it really started with the original secret, which was when I went to Rock Island State Park um, in Wisconsin as a kid. Um, I was part of a Polish Boy Scout troop, and uh, we went up to Rock so, Island, um, and I had never heard of this place before, but um, uh, it, it's way up at the very tip of Door County in, in Wisconsin. It juts out into Lake Michigan, and it's this, this absolutely beautiful island that, um, as I learned subsequently, has a fascinating origin story, but ultimately right now it's just a um, state park, and it's renowned in the area, but no one has heard of it outside of Door County. And I just had such an amazing time there. And um, as an adult now thinking about trying to find fun experiences for, for my family, um, I realized that state parks, uh, state parks are this hidden secret, um, but actually they are everywhere. And so they're hidden, but they're hidden in absolutely plain sight. And I think part of it has to do with the number there are over 8,000 state parks all across the U.S. Wow. Um, and so that really came as a surprise to me. And they, they uh, come and in so, all shapes and sizes, as do national parks, to be fair. I mean, there are some national parks that are simply a statue, like the Statue of Liberty and the island it's on, or a historic home, as well as these parks that are as big as some states, as is the case with Yellowstone. Is there that much variety with state parks? Absolutely. I mean, it is it is an incredible variety, and and it's not just in terms of small and and large, as as, as you said, but it's also from the famous um, to the absolutely forgotten. And of course, one of the most famous, perhaps the most famous, is Niagara Falls. Um, and mm. many um, national parks, or several national parks, started as state parks. Um, there is a um, um, there's a number of state parks in Alaska that are actually marine state parks. And what that means is that basically they're a cluster of different islands that are completely uninhabited. Um, and the area around it or the ocean around it is also part of that state park system. So the variety is as different as you would expect with um, 50 different state park systems um, and that's really what I loved about it. And talking about that variety and, and parks that were once national parks but are now state parks or vice versa, I was recently in Mackinac Island in Michigan, which started as a national park but now is a state park. And it's really a glorious place. I mean, it could be either, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you. It has a historic fort. They have no cars, so you get around in, in horse and carriage. It's really like going back to the, the past. I Before you leave Wisconsin, 
I want to hear about the backstory of the park you grew up in. Is it does it have to do with glaciers, or is there some other type of backstory there? Oh, the black、uh, the backstory of of、uh, Rock Island State Park. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a crazy. I mean, so many of these have have great origin stories, and as a amateur historian, it's 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 really what I was attracted to, among so many other things. But for Rock Island State Park.、Um, It was bought by a um, um, Icelandic immigrant,、um, mm. so an immigrant from from Iceland who、um, came over to the United States in the classic story with nothing, with no money in his pocket, went to Chicago, and、um, made a lot of money, and then decided、um, decided to buy this、uh, island off the coast of of Wisconsin, and it was. Completely uninhabited, and he、um, decided to make it his own playground,、um, probably to、um, you know to, to, to do whatever he wanted. But he also he, he so he、um, built some really fancy architecture, some some really fancy harbors and buildings、huh. and, and things like that. And he died, and he left it to the state of Wisconsin. And、oh. so now、um, it's an amazingly、um, untouched place. And yet, it's got this incredibly fancy architecture all around, just because it was his own personal、um, playground. Yeah, very cool. We're are, we're speaking with Peter Kujawinski, who wrote a terrific series of articles for the New York Times on state parks. Peter, one of the things you did is you went out west, where these national parks. Draw all the attention, and not surprisingly so, because it's places like Yellowstone with its geysers and、um, uh, Yosemite with its uh, incredible uh, uh, trees.、Uh, blanking on the type of trees they have in <laughs> those are called what? Are, what are the trees in Yosemite? Oh, the、uh, sequoias. Sequoias, the grand yeah. sequoias. Yeah. yeah. How, does it make any sense to go out west and simply go to a state park or any? As majestic or interesting as as the marquee names for the national parks out west. Well, the short answer is absolutely, and that's what I found so fascinating. I mean,、um, uh, topography, trees, animals—they don't know these boundaries of what's a <laughs> national park and what's a state park and what's private land and what's and what's. Any other type of land, and so, for example, I was at Harriman State Park, which is、uh, less than a hundred miles from Yellowstone. And in fact, you know what? I, let's hold that thought. When we come back, we're going to talk about Harriman State Park. We'll be right back. Back to the travel show, we left off talking about Harriman State Park in Iowa, or in Idaho. Sorry, or is it Iowa?、Uh, let me、nope. start again. Wh- which one is it? Idaho. Idaho. Okay. Welcome back. We left off talking about 
Harriman State Park in Idaho with our guest, Peter Kujawinski, who has written a terrific series of articles for the New York Times about state parks. So uh, set the scene. Where in Idaho is this park and why is it so interesting to visit? So Harriman State Park is essentially a state park that is on the border of Yellowstone National Park. And of course, Yellowstone National Park is one of these iconic parks that gets so many visitors, um, especially during the summertime, but really at at all times. Well, right across the border is Harriman State Park, which um, has a fascinating um, origin story in and of itself because it it was the um, ranch of Averill Harriman, a um, New York um, businessman and and philanthropist and uh, he decided that he wanted to give this massive expanse, this uh, massive ranch, to the Idaho State Park system. But at the time, there was no state park system. And, and Harriman State Park was the reason for Idaho uh, to put together a wow. state park system. Well, thank you, Mr. Harriman. That's great. Yeah, exactly. So what does it look like? Does I mean, I, I would say, does it look like Yellowstone? But I've been to Yellowstone, and I know that that massive state park, I mean, it's the state of the size of Connecticut, looks so different in every area. So what's, what's good about Harriman? So Harriman State Park um, is a classic mix of what you would find in uh, Yellowstone. It's got this beautiful river um, that's that's um, one of the, uh, apparently, I, I didn't go fishing there, but one of the best, um, I've, I've heard one of the best trout fishing rivers in the state. Um, it's got a beautiful expanse of um, forest and rolling hills. Um, but the best part about it, in my opinion, is that because it's a state park, it doesn't get any of the attention that Yellowstone does. Mm. And so if you want the yellow, the Yellowstone topography, the Yellowstone ecosystem experience, but with zero crowds, you go to Harriman State Park. I mean, when, when I was there with the photographer who accompanied me, we were the only people who spent the night in Harriman State Park. Wow. Um, we, it was super busy uh, beforehand, but that was simply because there was a regional track meet going through Harriman State Park. <laughs> and that was it. Um, it just didn't get that, that many visitors. Now, some state parks, of course, get massive amounts of visitors. But in general, I, I would say that state parks, though very, very popular within the region where they are, are not known outside of the region. And so subsequently, they just don't get the types of um, um, numbers of tourists that a um, internationally famous park like right. Yellowstone gets. We're speaking with Peter Kujawinski, who wrote a terrific series of articles for the New York Times on state parks. And as you were saying, they're only known in the region they are, which makes the visitor experience so different. You talk about going to what sounds like a glorious state park in Hawaii, where everybody else is Hawaiian and they've come out with their kids and they're grilling. And yet it had the best snorkeling you experienced. So would it be that going to these state parks, you not only get this beautiful slice of nature, but you get to meet the real people and find out what life is like in that area? Now you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, that's, um, that's something that I talked about in terms of the differences between national parks and state parks. Uh, national parks are internationally known, deservedly so. State parks, some are internationally um, known, but basically, 
state parks belong where they are. They, they are so reflective of the culture, of the environment um, that, that, that they're located in, that you get this great um, double bang for your buck. Not only do you get a really wonderful outdoor experience, but you also get a sense of what life is like in that particular area, which um, I think is just naturally less so when you visit some of these big national parks. Yeah, and sometimes it, it really is about what's in the park. From reading your articles, one that I desperately want to visit is Bannock State Park in Montana, which is a, a, a real ghost town. Explain what's, what you see and do there. Yeah, Bannock State Park is amazing. I, I definitely want to go back. Um, so it is, it is the first capital, it, it was the first territorial capital of Montana. Um, it is very simply a one-lane um, town with a couple of houses in and on, on each direction. It was quite popular um, when it first started back in the 19th century uh, because there, was, um, there were mines nearby, but then as... Um, the, the, the arc of life at Bannock was very short. It, it, it was very popular. It was a state, um, it was the first capital. But then um, it slowly bled uh, people and uh, the uh, mine um, tapped out. And so because of that, the last uh, person living in Bannock um, as a resident left in the 70s. And so since then, it has been a ghost town in the sense that um, there's no one living there. But what's interesting about the way that the Montana State Park System decided to keep it is that they didn't refurbish anything. So nothing is, um, everything is exactly as it was um, back in the 1970s. So you have this mix of styles of sod houses um, that were built in the 19th century and never improved upon to linoleum floors from the 60s and 70s, depending on the, on, on the building. And the State Park System simply keeps them um, standing. Yeah, I thought it, it sounded just amazing. We've been speaking with Peter Kujawinski, who wrote a great series of articles for the New York Times on state parks. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Pauline. I appreciate it. All right, that was really great. Thank you. Welcome back to The Travel Show. You know, recently we passed a pretty remarkable anniversary. It was Sunday, August 25th, which marked the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Paris from the Nazis at the end of World War II. The reason we're thinking about it is, on that same day, a new museum opened in Paris to talk about the liberation, to talk about the resistance. Uh, we actually have a whole article on it on Fromers.com. Uh, it's in the 14th arrondissement, uh, and uh, it's right near the catacombs. It's right near Montparnasse Cemetery, so it's in, in an area where te- people will go. But to me, this is a very interesting subject for the French to take on, because after World War II... 
it, it was a harder war for the French, I think, to get over than it was for the British because the British, they all were kind of in it together. They didn't live among the Nazis during the occupation. They didn't have some people working with the Nazis while others were in the resistance. Uh, to me, it's interesting that it's taken this long for them to create a museum to this subject. What do you think, Dad? I think that's a fascinating subject, and I'm amazed at myself that I've never been aware of this museum after dozens and dozens well, it, of visits. It just to opened. Paris. It just opened. Oh, it, it just it's opened opening right now. Yeah, well, I that's can why. <laughs> that the Parisians have double have a, a double vision with respect to that. Many of them collaborated with the Nazi occupiers. Yes, and they are ashamed of that today. And the museum, I assume, deals with that ethical question. I'm sure it does. It it's named in the subtitle it's for two heroes of the French resistance right. uh, Jean-Philippe Leclerc who was the French general who led troops in northern Africa and Normandy uh, and he's the one who actually accepted the surrender of the Germans in Paris in 1944 and the other is Jean Moulin who was posing as a gallerist but he he engaged in a lot of resistance groups. In fact, he was kind of the man who helped unify the resistance against Germany. So he he was the person who acted as the conduit for, for uh, organizing all of the different uh, programs. Do you remember those two? Have you I've, ever heard I've, of them I've before? never fe- heard of either of them. Really? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? And it's a, g- a great gap in my knowledge. It, the Parisians acted as human beings will act. Some of them went along with the Germans. Others fought them. Others remained underground. Uh Uh, People like Jean-Paul Sartre and and, and, and Camus in particular were active in the underground. And there were a great many members of the underground that were captured by the Nazis and Mm -hmm. executed. And that too, I assume, is a subject of the museum. It's going to be a wonderful new reason to go to Paris, as if you needed another reason. And the name of the museum again? uh, The museum is called uh, Musée de la Libération de Paris, Musée de General Leclerc, and Musée Jean Moulin. We have to take a break. We thank you so much for listening and to those traveling a hearty... We wish you a hearty bon voyage.